1: Welcome to The Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, The Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman.
2: Welcome to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Louis Skatigna, who is a certified financial planner based in New Jersey. He's also the author of a new book called The Financial Physician. Welcome to the show, Louis.
3: Jordan, great to be with you.
2: Let's just start with a little bit of your background and... Uh, how you've gotten to where you are today, and what kind of financial planning your clients do, and so on.
3: All right, uh, I've been a financial advisor for 27 years, an independent uh, certified financial planner for the last. 23 years, and I cater mainly to senior citizens. Uh, I specialize in senior financial issues. Uh, have a radio program down here in New Jersey geared towards senior uh, money matters. So, been doing that. Had my own firm, AFM Investments, since 1987. We opened up the week before the stock market crash, uh, which was a very exciting time for me. I was 27 years old. So was my um, my business partner. We had no money. We opened up a brokerage firm just before the crash, and we said, "You know, geez, we're going into the depression." Uh, little did we know that it would be 23 years later that would be entering entering the depression. But uh, but we've been uh, we've been managing money for quite some time.
2: And what is the idea of the financial physician? Why, why do you need a financial physician? Are you a financial physician for yourself? Explain how that works.
3: I use the term the financial physician because I learned early in my career uh, when speaking with clients if I use medical analogies they kind of got it a little bit better than using financial terms. Well, an example would be uh, credit card debt is cancer to the financial body, you know. People get that when you say that. So when I started my radio show here on uh, in New Jersey 10 years ago I was thinking about, you know, what's a great title for a financial radio show? I said, you know what? Let's make it the financial physician and uh since then, that's what I've been, and uh, that's the name of my book, uh, my website, and uh, my radio shows.
2: So, what are some? Well, we're going to get into the book in some details, but before, let's kind of get an over, overview. What, what are you trying to accomplish with the book and helping people uh, manage their personal finances better?
3: Well, Jordan, I wanted to write this book a long time ago, and like everything else, we procrastinate, we write a little bit, put it aside. Uh, but after the financial crisis hit a couple of years ago, uh, I realized that we as americans have lost our way financially uh... we've become financially irresponsible we've become uh... uh, we've had feelings of material entitlement that we need to live rich and americans went out and got into hawk into debt, bought houses that were too big for them, new cars all the time, and I, I wanted to write a book that would be, uh, give people the basics about the proper, responsible way that we need to live now and in the future, because, you know, good times aren't coming back tomorrow. I mean, the, the last 30 years in America was an illusion. Uh, the prosperity of this country was built on debt and spending. And now that debt's exploded on Americans, we're losing our homes, we're defaulting on our credit cards, and we're not going to go back to that, Spend money we don't have, buy things we can't afford. Attitude. So the book gives people a very uh, uh, the smart way to buy cars, a smart way to buy houses, a smart way to live your life. So I think this is the time that we needed to have a book uh, that teaches, especially younger people, uh, the proper way to manage their money, the proper way to live uh, their financial life.
2: You start with uh, a chapter about financial illiteracy. What is the state of financial illiteracy these days? There's a lot of states that now have mandated personal finance courses. There's all kinds of literature curriculum out there why are we uh, so financially illiterate with all this education going on
3: well, you know, it's the number one reason people fail financially is just not understanding money. Uh, and, you know, although some school districts now are starting to institute personal finance in high school, it's still uh, very few and far between. Uh, it's been one of my big uh, campaigns is to try to get uh, New Jersey here schools to, to carry personal finance courses. And uh, I believe it should be mandatory that uh, for at least two years in high school, junior and senior year, uh, you should pass a personal finance course to be able to graduate. I mean, we teach our kids all kinds of information in in school that they'll never use. The War of 1812, you know, chemistry, things that they're never going to use, but we don't teach them how to balance a checkbook, how credit cards work, how finance works, So, what a mortgage is, what a mutual fund is, how taxes work. And we send our kids out into their financial life with absolutely no knowledge. Then they wind up going to college, and the first thing they they see when they enter the campus is a kiosk, trying to get them to sign up for credit cards. And then the average uh, college kid graduates with $8,000 in credit card debt. And we start off on the wrong foot from day one, and many of us never get out uh, from under the eight ball. So it's real important that we teach our children, not only in school but in our own households, what money uh, what money is, how to save money, how to invest money, how to avoid debt, what's good debt, what's bad debt. And uh, I started sitting down with my own children uh, when they were about 12, 13. And I remember sitting down with my son and going over all the bills with him. And his eyes were just like he couldn't believe how expensive it was to live. Because a 12-year-old, $100 is all the money in the world. When I showed my son my $500 electric bill, I mean, he just couldn't believe that that was just for one month. Uh, And he started to understand why Dad tells him to turn off the lights when he comes out of his room. So we need to teach our kids about money in school, and we also need to teach them about it in the house
2: you talk about the vital signs of uh... financial literacy what are some of the vital signs uh, that people should look
0: at
3: well number one if if you're entering into uh... financial transactions a mortgage car loans and things, and you don't know what you're doing. You're just letting somebody tell you what to do, uh, then you're financially illiterate. If you walk into a brokerage firm and you say, you know, I I have $15,000 I want to invest, and you do just whatever the person tells you to do because you don't know any better, uh, then you're financially illiterate. If you go to your accountant and you just drop all the tax stuff and you don't sit down with them and talk about the tax situation, uh, then you're financially illiterate. So these are the vital signs showing that, that you need to do something about it. What do you need to do? You need to educate yourself. Uh, There's a tremendous number of resources available to us, Uh, certainly the tremendous amount of personal finance books, from the ones that you've written uh, to the ones that I I just wrote, uh, as well as websites, blogs, uh, uh, financial news uh, sites to read. Uh, If we want to become financially literate, uh, the internet allows it uh, to become quite easy. And a lot of community colleges now uh, teach uh, personal finance courses uh, uh, just for the average community that you can go and, and learn the basics about money. So that's what we need to do if we're going to succeed financially.
2: You've got a section here about uh, keeping up with the Joneses. Uh, is that is that still happening today, or people have kind of scaled back their expectations to keep Not up with the they've scaled
3: back their expectations, uh, thankfully, but I think the the you know, main reason we got into the, the problem that we're in now financially is because we wanted to keep up with our neighbors. You know, we saw they had new cars every three or four years. Well, we, we wanted a new car every three or four years. We saw people buying McMansions, you know, these big homes. Well, we wanted to have a nice home, uh, and we would go into debt to do that. Now that the debt rooster has come home, uh, now everybody uh, is thinking differently. They're thinking about paying down their debt. They're not thinking about going out and spending big bucks on a uh, on um, big houses, new cars and things like that because number 1 they can't do it anymore. I mean, they can't get the credit anymore. They can't pay the debt they already have and in many cases uh they've lost their jobs. So, uh, thinking about keeping up with the Joneses, that kind of attitude, uh, I think that's gone away for a while and that's a good thing.
2: You say that the financial crisis has been a wake-up call for a lot of people. How do you see your clients uh handling the current situation differently than when uh the economy was much better?
3: Well, number one, uh, again, as I said before, they're, they're not looking to buy those big expensive items anymore. I mean, we're, we're going to start keeping our cars, uh, for five, six, seven years or until they break. That's funny thing. I, I, I mentioned in the book that when, when I was a kid, uh, and I, I guess when you were that, you know, that age, uh, right around 1969, 1970, my parents bought a car. It was a new car in 1966 they bought, a Ford station wagon. Uh, when I turned, uh, 17, in 1977, it became my car. So it was 11 years old. I had it for two years, and then my brother had it for two years. You don't see that happening anymore. You know, we buy a new car. As soon as those payments are over, we turn it in we want to buy a new one. Okay, and that's just the way we've been doing it. So uh, things are changing, and I I think they're changing for the good. Uh, And the financial crisis is making people think about, well, you know, not so important. I have a new car. I just want to make sure I can get from point A to point B. As long as the car is running and I don't have any car payments, that's a good thing. And I think people are starting to change their thinking. And people now are starting to think about the future too. They're saying, "Geez, I need to start putting money away from my retirement." Social Security may not be there for me. And uh, Social Security now is running out of deficit for the first time in, I guess, two decades. And as we have more and more people entering Social Security, more and more younger people uh, are doubtful that it's going to be there for them. So. They want to start saving. They want to start investing for their future. So I think the financial crisis has been a real kick in the butt uh, for almost every American.
2: We talked about financial illiteracy. You then talk about financial irresponsibility. Uh, is it kind of still left over from the, the days when people were spending a lot that they are still irresponsible, or, or has the new reality kind of changed them to becoming more responsible?
3: Well. And in a lot of cases, they are becoming more responsible, and, and not because they really want to, just because they're being forced to. I mean, they have no choice. I mean, if you don't have the money to spend and you don't have the credit available, you have to live within your means. So people are becoming more responsible. When I talk about financial irresponsibility, usually personal irresponsibility goes with financial irresponsibility. And here's an example. Now, now, cigarette smokers aren't going to like me for saying that, but you know, if you buy two packs of cigarettes a day, well, let's do some math here. Well, 30, 31 days in, in a year. I know here in New Jersey, it costs almost $10 for a pack of cigarettes. So, I mean, two times, so you're talking about uh, $600 a month for cigarettes? I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, if you think about it, just absolutely ridiculous. Uh, and if both husband and wife smoke, you talk talking about $1,200 a month. Now, let's not just pick on smokers. I mean, if you're a drinker and you, you pop into the, the local bar and you drop $20 a day on some beers with some buddies, I mean, that all adds up if you're a gambler. You know, any vice that we have you know it, it, i know there's exceptions to the rule and people listen to me now and to say hey i'm not like that but as a financial advisor for 27 years i found that people who smoke cigarettes really rarely have a net worth or any significant net worth because they smoke cigarettes and it's not really cuz all the money's going to cigarettes it's because it's just an element of personal irresponsibility uh that transcends everything that they do including financial so uh you know we got to be financially responsible we got to be personally responsible and you know look not only does buying spending money on booze and cigarettes uh, uh affect your financial health it affects your physical health as well so uh it would be smart for all of us to try to live uh cleaner lives and uh, and and that will transcend into our finances as well
2: what are some of the specific steps you talk about to become financially responsible?
3: Well, the first thing you want to do is just look at how you live. Uh, look how you live every day, how you spend money. I tell people you should walk around with a pair of small pad in the back pocket uh, and a pen, and every dime that you spend for a month, you write down. Because we could sit down and you know write all of our bills out and see what our fixed expenses are and what we pay every month, but it's those cash money that we spend every day you know those those cafe lattes add up uh, going out to eat a lot adds up going for convenience stores or or fast food all this money goes out of our lives so if you if you walk around and you and you have a pad in your back pocket and you write every single dime you spend for a month i think that people uh, would get a, an awakening and realize that they're being totally irresponsible with the way they're spending money think about bringing lunch to work every day just do the math figure out how much it costs to buy a pound of cold cuts and a loaf of bread that will feed you for five business days versus how much you're going out and spending by walking out and buying fast food or going to a diner or a restaurant. Uh, If you're eating out to dinner two, three times a week, well, think about what would happen if you made it one a week or maybe once every other week. How much money can you save? How much money can you free up to redirect into other areas of your life like debt or savings?
2: Okay, we're gonna take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Lewis Scotigna, who is a certified financial planner, author of the new book, The Financial Physician. We'll be back after this. <music>
0: up-to-date business and financial news call now and get the financial information you need 866-472-5790 866-472-5790 the experts are here voice america business network are you ready to go green you've asked and we've heard you voice america presents the green talk network
1: You've been listening to the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866 472 5790. That's 866 472 5790. Now back to Jordan.
2: Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Louis Skatigna, who is a certified financial planner based in New Jersey. Uh, his new book is called The Financial Physician. Welcome back to the show, Lewis. Thanks. Appreciate it. Uh, tell people uh, your uh, website and how they can find out more about you and the book.
3: All right. On the website, it's thefinancialphysician.com. Uh, make sure you put the T-H-E in front of it, thefinancialphysician.com. And, and on the website, I um, have a very active blog. I probably make, on average, six or seven posts a day. And I put information on that blog that you're really not going to read in the mainstream press, we do financial planning oriented stuff, economic stuff, worldwide finance, things like that. I also, on that website, uh, archive uh, my radio show, uh, my, my uh, Sunday morning radio show in New Jersey. And uh, since August, I've been doing a national radio show on uh, XM Satellite Radio, uh, Talk Radio 165. We've also archived the last three weeks uh, of the national radio show as well on that website, and that's thefinancialphysician.com.
2: Great. Okay, you were talking about some ways to become uh, financially responsible, and uh, one of the things you say is to be systematic. What do you mean by that?
3: Well, you have to set goals. I mean, too many of us you know, say, okay, you know, um, I'm 30 years old. You know, uh, well, I'll retire. Okay, I'll put money away in the future, whatever. Instead of saying, you know what, I need to accumulate X number of dollars in 20 years. If I can assume a, a certain rate of return, uh, then I know exactly how much I have to put away every single month to achieve that goal. And then you have to... Be disciplined, and if it's three hundred a month, that three hundred a month has to be put away first before you pay any bill, and you got to do it systematically without fail. And, and that's the way people achieve financial goals. Through, you know, bean by bean, we fill the basket. But if we say we want to retire with a million dollars, well, that's a big number. Uh, but if you break it down to uh, how much do I have to put away on a weekly basis, a monthly basis, or a yearly basis, it becomes much more easier to achieve. And then once you get into the habit of doing this when you pay your bills every month put money away into your retirement plan uh, your mutual funds whatever it is uh, it becomes easier and easier to do because we become it becomes a habit for us and then we like to pick up our statement and see our net worth growing you know it saddens me that 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 probably I think the last I saw is about sixty percent of Americans would be broke in two weeks after they lose their job I mean they don't have any savings in the future and we need to start looking at hey how am i going to retire hey how is my children going to go to college versus spending all our money on a $40,000 new car that we really don't need and that's the way we have to change the way we think think about building wealth for the future and then live reasonably today
2: tell me about the need test you said that's also part of being financially responsible
3: well you got to understand that we buy what we want not necessarily what we need in the times that we're going to be living in and again i believe that Tough times are going to be here for a long time. Uh, the last 30 years is over. We're not going back there. We're going to have to think about money differently uh, if we're going to survive in the years ahead. So we have to buy what we need, not what we want. When you're in a store in your shop, and you're shopping, you got to ask yourself this question. Do I need this or do I want it? And that way, that will free up cash to divert into investment savings whatever, or debt pay down whatever you want to do so uh, that's the needs test and, and I try to do it to myself every time I go to buy something I say to myself Lou do you really want this or do you really need this and uh, then the, the question simply is a lot of times I'll say you know what I really don't need this and you know a lot of things that we think we need or things we, we think we want uh, you know it, uh, they wear off on us shortly after we buy them and it gets into a pile somewhere and we never touch it know, so always think about how you're spending money and always use that needs test do I need it or do I want it ask that question
2: and then you talk about changing your partners in crime. What do you mean by that?
3: Well, if you're, whole, if you're hanging around with people who are financially irresponsible, personally irresponsible, you know, you're going to be that way. You know, my dad always said to me, you know, I could tell everything about you by just seeing your friends. And that's true about financially. If we're hanging around with, with, with financial losers, uh, those who spend every dollar that they make, don't save any money, you're not going to probably be the guy that's going to be different than them. If you hang around with people who are financially responsible, personally responsible, chances are you're going to want to emulate that, and you're going to do the same thing as well. So, yeah, don't hang around with those people who are going to drag you down to the bar or, or, or your girlfriend who's always shopping at the mall and she wants to take you with her every Saturday. Uh, you know, you want to stay away from that, those kind of people.
2: You didn't have a whole chapter on what you call feelings of material entitlement. Uh, is, do we have, like, an entitlement culture these days? What, what do you mean by that?
3: well we we do have an entitlement culture we have two different types of entitlement cultures many people believe that the government should support them, and uh, I think over 50% of, of the citizens of our country now uh, are dependent on the U.S. government for, for income of some kind, whether it's Social Security, whether it's unemployment, whether it's um, benefits of any kind, Medicare, uh, Medicaid, whatever. So a lot of us are, feel that we are entitled. The government should be paying for these things for us. That's one part of entitlement. But material entitlement believes that we deserve to live rich. We're Americans. We deserve to live rich. No matter how much money we make, we deserve to have the new, the best, the biggest of everything. And that's why you know we see people uh, who are in homes that they really can't afford and should never have bought in the first place, who are driving cars that you know you say, "Geez, I didn't know he was doing so well." Well, he's not doing so well. He's making a big four, five, six hundred dollar car payment every month. He looks like he's doing well. He's looking good. He's feeling good. He feels like he's rich. He's, uh, uh, but really, he's not. He's struggling. And now you could drive. a Around in, in the most American neighborhoods now, and you'll see two brand new cars in the driveway. The house is big, and you say, "Boy, this this is a wealthy neighborhood." It really isn't. Most of those people have huge mortgages, big car payments, and if they, either their wife or them loses their job, uh, then they're, they're they're losing everything. So material entitlement is very dangerous because uh, it's a psychological thing. We could talk ourselves into saying, "You know what? I deserve this." I have worked hard. I deserve that new car every three years. I work hard. I deserve that, that, that big house and that big pool in the backyard regardless of the income that we make. And here's an example, Jordan. I knew we were headed into a financial crisis uh, two years before it happened. And on my radio shows, I told everybody it was going to happen. And, and, and I knew this because one of my clients came to me and sat down with me. And this guy was a sanitation worker. He was garbage man. Nothing wrong with garbage, man. We need them. But he was a garbage man. He was making about 65000 a year. His wife was making about twenty. So they were making $85,000 a year. And he told me he was buying a $750,000 house. Now, I said, how can you afford this house? And he showed me the mortgage that he was taking. And it was one of these Option R mortgages where you only pay the minimum. You don't even pay the interest. You can pay the minimum payment. Uh, and I said to him, I said, are you nuts? You're crazy. You can't afford this. because what happens when... Your payments get ratcheted up in the future. Oh, by then the house will be worth more and I can refinance. And that's what everybody was doing at the time, is right. feeling that way. And at that point, I knew we were doomed. I knew the banking system was doomed. I knew that this was not going to work. And sure enough, two and a half years later, he lost the house to foreclosure. So it was the feelings of material entitlement that made that kind of guy make that kind of a financial transaction because him and his wife believed they deserved to have that house when they really should have a house that was less than half the price of that.
2: So what is the treatment for material entitlement?
3: Well, uh, uh, it, it, it's tough to decide how to treat. I mean, it's really education. I mean, education uh, and responsibility. Uh, it's really hard to get that out of people's heads. But, you know, now people are are learning uh, their treatment is losing everything. Their treatment is uh, having to sell that expensive house. Their treatment is to have their, their car uh, repossessed. And now they know that, hey, uh, maybe... Uh, Maybe uh, I shouldn't have those feelings of material entitlement. Maybe I should buy uh, what I can afford. And here's an example. uh, In the 1950s, the average square footage of a home was about 975 square feet. The average square foot of a home right now uh, is over 3,000 or close to 3,000 square feet. So it's triple the size of the house. And at the same time, the size of the families have gone down. So less people living in a house and a much bigger home. Well, how did that happen? Because Americans believe they deserve bigger and bigger. And and sure enough, uh, home builders were happy to build them, and banks were happy to finance them. And uh, and then we are in 2008, and everything's falling apart. If everybody followed
2: your directions, wouldn't the economy collapse? I mean, nobody would buy anything.
3: You know, uh, yeah, probably, because you know what? The economy is addicted to debt and spending. And again, that's why I say the prosperity uh, of the 80s, 90s, and and, and 2000 uh, was an illusion. It was built on debt and spending, and it really uh, needed more and more spending. The consumer had to buy more and more and more. And that's why the economy has collapsed, is because it is so consumer-driven that the consumer is pulling back, because they have to, either they don't have a job, they can't make their debt payments, Right? Their investments are down, their house is down, they can't get credit. So, uh, yes, the economy was addicted to the consumer. And you're right, if, 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 if people do what I say in this book and live frugal lives and responsible lives, yes, there will be an adjustment to the economy. There will be an adjustment to home prices. Uh, but it's necessary for the survival of our country because it was not sustainable. We couldn't keep going in debt like we have been. I mean, the family debt is higher than it's ever been. And, you know, you get to the point of where you just can't, can't hold any more debt. And, uh, and in many cases, you're defaulting on that debt. And that's why I think the economy's got a long way to go before it improves, because consumers are uh, up to their eyeballs in debt, defaulting on it like crazy. We still have a whole bunch more foreclosures to come in the years to come. And, uh, and it's going to be a painful adjustment. Uh, but five years from now, ten years from now, uh, the way the average family lives is going to be totally different uh than the way we've lived the last 20 or 30 years totally different it seems like the private houses. sector we're going to keep our cars 10 years uh we're going to put money in the away we're not going to be able to borrow on credit cards it's going to be a totally different environment for us
2: the private sector and individuals and companies are cutting their debt a lot and increasing savings more uh but the federal government particularly is not they're spending and and going into debt more than ever is there some disconnect between those two
3: Oh, yeah big time and uh you know it's really scary uh how debt is exploding in our country uh public debt uh and I think it's going to end extremely badly uh, I think we're going to be dealing with a significant inflation problem in the years to come uh the u s dollar has been eroding over uh, obviously the last twenty years but uh, but certainly more the last couple of years uh and uh and, and we can't sustain one and a half trillion dollar deficits uh uh, then we add our unfunded liabilities of Social Security and, and Medicare. Uh, uh, I try to lay up, I try to be optimistic. My, my listeners on my radio program call me Dr. Doom because for years, I, I, you know, I was warning uh, of this coming, this catastrophe. And uh, I, I lay up at night sometimes and I wonder how we get out of this. You know, where are we 10 years from now? And, you know, it's projected that we may have $25 trillion in debt 10 years from now.
2: So how and does it end? Right. Do we just keep adding debt, or does it, at a certain point, the people won't uh, lend to
3: us? Yes, people will stop lending to us, and then we'll continue to print the money like like all econ- uh, countries have done in history, uh, and then have a collapse of the currency and uh, uh, inflation or hyperinflationary depression. Uh, and then uh, we start over. Uh, I think, unfortunately, that's the path that we're on. And, so how do
2: you pre- if, if you assume that that's correct, how do you prepare for that with your personal finances today, if you assume that's going to happen?
3: Well, the way you prepare for it, I'll tell you the way I prepared for it. Uh, I have a significant position in precious metals as a hedge against that, a uh, significant amount of American Eagle gold coins. I have a, uh, I, I think I have 50% of my personal portfolio out of U.S. dollars in some way or the other, either through precious metals or foreign currency exchange-traded funds. And I don't tell other people to do that. Uh, I just say that because it, it tells people how convinced I am that we're on the path to dollar destruction inflation and maybe even hyperinflation and i'm not going to have the wealth that i worked hard to build up disappear uh because of misguided policies of the federal government uh that is continuing to deficit spend now if we think that the average family has been irresponsible with the way they've managed their personal finances by spending more than they earned and uh, going into debt uh, the government's worse
2: Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Louis Skatigna, who's a certified financial planner based in New Jersey. Uh, His new book is called The Financial Physician. His website, thefinancialphysician.com. We'll be back after this.
1: both their products and services are invited to become members of the money answers network the public can sign up for membership in the money answers network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources to learn more visit www.moneyanswers.com get ahead with money answers
0: when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network
1: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
2: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Lewis Skatigna, who is a certified financial planner in New Jersey. Uh, his new book is called The Financial Physician. Uh, his website is thefinancialphysician.com. Welcome back to
3: the show, Lewis. Oh, it's great to be with you, Jordan.
2: We want to talk about cars a little bit. How do people waste money on cars, and how can they do better?
3: Uh, this is this is a big one. Uh, after our homes, cars are the most costly items most of us buy, and in the course of our lifetime, we could buy as many as 10 or 15 cars. So how we buy and finance our cars can make a huge difference in our financial health. And I state in my book, uh, Detroit's not going to like to hear me say this, but Unless you're a very wealthy individual, you should never, ever, in your entire lifetime, buy a brand new car. Now, that sounds a little radical, but I, I call um, I call cars disinvestments. You know, investments you put money you want to have grow it. A uh, car is a disinvestment. As soon as you buy it and drive off the lot, you've lost money because first year depreciation in new cars runs about twenty seven percent, and if we buy. 10 to 15 new cars over the course of our car driving life. I mean, that's a lot of money that we're losing. And I did a calculation in a book uh, that if we took the first year depreciation alone over the course of our lifetime buying new cars and just had a 5% rate of return, you'd have a half a million dollar retirement nest egg, you know, just because you're buying cars, uh, you're not buying new cars. So, how do you buy cars? I suggest buying cars that are two to three years old that are coming off of lease. There's a lot of dealerships out there that only sell cars that are coming off of lease. These banks want their money back; they don't want the cars. So what they do is uh, a lot of these dealerships they they auction off the most of them, but they take the they cherry pick the best ones, they certify them, they put them in their showrooms, and they sell them below book value. And that's the way I've been buying my cars for the last 10 years. Is I go in there and I see a car that's two years old, typically it has between fifteen and 30,000 miles on it. And, you know, we know the way cars are built now. They last 200,000, 300,000 miles if you take care of them. So it's still very, very new. Many of these cars are spotless. They even smell new in some cases. And you walk into the showroom, you think you're walking into a new car showroom. So I'm buying cars that are about, about 35% less than brand new as far as costs go. Which means that your payments are lower, your insurance is lower, uh, and uh, and they last for a long time. I could. I can keep them until six, seven, eight years. Then I need another car. I go buy, you know, I go back to the, the lease uh, dealer and buy another one. And these are becoming more and more popular. These uh, these dealers they call the uh, auto lender liquidators. Uh, and uh, if you do some research, you'll find them in your area. And uh, there's no haggling. You walk in there, you look at the sticker on there, and it says NADA book value. They tell you the number, and typically they're selling these cars five hundred to a thousand dollars below book value, and you're getting yourself. Virtually a brand new car, uh, but it's costing you about sixty-five percent the cost of a new one. So that's the way to buy cars. Buying new cars is really, really stupid, uh, and really adversely affects your financial health.
2: You have some things about other things not to do. You don't like leasing, for example. Why do you we, not like leasing,
3: leasing? Unless you're a business person and can write these leases off, uh, leases are the most expensive way to buy a car. Why? Because you never have any equity in a car. Uh, You you know, people lease because the payments are lower, but you're always paying a car payment Uh, because once that lease is up, you have no car. You have nothing to trade in. You have nothing to drive, so you have to go out and either lease a new car or go buy a new car. So you have perpetual car payments, And, and I know a lot of people will go and buy a lease because they want an expensive car that they can't afford. Okay, so they use the financing option of a lease to acquire, again, something they can't afford, something that they feel they're materially entitled to, uh, and uh, and they, they do it the worst way possible uh, by lease, leasing a car. And, uh, and again, we have to think these things through, and a part of this has to do with financial illiteracy that we talked about earlier. They just don't know the right way to go about this, how to crunch numbers, how to how to figure out the financing options that are available to them. But it really hurts our net worth. And Now, the problem with most Americans is that, again, either whether they're buying new cars or they're buying used cars or they're leasing cars, is that they have car payments, and they have significant car payments. An average family that I see has probably 600 to $800 a month in car payments. That used to be a mortgage payment. Uh, and the whole goal here is to, to buy a car that we own, pay it off over time, and then keep it for as long as it'll run, so we have years where we have no car payments at all. I haven't had a car payment in 10 years, and I'm not ever going to have a car payment again because car payments are a waste of money. Uh, Just keep that car as long as it's running and you're not sinking money into it, and as long as it's safe, uh, don't go run out there and just kind of replace your car every time the the loan is over or the lease is up.
2: A lot of people go for these 0% uh, very cheap financing deals. What's wrong with that?
3: Nothing. I, I, I agree 100% if you're, um, you're going to buy a car and you can get, again, you only get these 0% financing deals on new cars, and I'm against new cars to begin with, but if you're going to go out and buy a new car uh, and the dealer's going to offer you 0% financing or you 1.9%, know, uh, it's free money. It makes absolutely no sense to take your money uh, that's invested or earning interest or whatever and then go take it and buy a car when the, go- when the car company will give you uh, a loan uh, at 0% interest. And, you know, Right now Toyota's I think it's got a five year zero percent interest loan on, on new cars. And again here I am selling Toyota new cars which I don't want people to buy in the first place, but here's an example of where uh it would make absolutely no sense uh to use your own money to buy that car uh when Toyota's giving you free money over five years. Uh number one, the payments will be lower, obviously, and um, uh and uh you could take your money and invest it elsewhere.
2: Okay, we had some good discussion on cars. I'd like to talk about insurance is the next area. Uh, you say a lot of people buy more insurance than they need, or it's too expensive. What are some ways uh, to cut people, what people pay in premiums for insurance but still get the amount of coverage they
3: need? Uh, that's right, Jordan. Uh, about 10 to 15% of our budget goes towards insurances of some kind. Life insurance, homeowners insurance, car insurance, and health insurance. So uh, it, it's a big part of our financial life, and what we need to do is make sure that we have the right coverage, number one, all right, and then at the right cost. Well, here's an example. Suppose uh, we need to get Some life insurance. Just got married. We have a little kid. You know, and we need to insure our lives. Well, if you go out and you buy a whole life policy, and your budget is, let's say, let's say your budget is two hundred dollars a month. Okay, Uh, you go buy a whole life policy. You're probably going to get like a hundred, hundred and fifty thousand dollar policy for that amount of money. And you know what? A hundred thousand dollar life insurance is not enough for a young family. It's just not. But if you took that money and you bought a term policy, well, you could buy five times the death benefit. Maybe even more than that. So you'll have a half million dollars in insurance right? when you're young versus $100,000. So that's just using your money properly, getting the right coverage, and at the right cost. And when I see new clients, especially younger clients see me, they typically were sold a whole life policy because life insurance agents get paid more to sell Whole life policies, so they push them a lot, and uh, I find out that you know they have a hundred thousand insurance, and it's cost them a lot of money uh, when they could have five times the amount of coverage uh, for many times less money than they're paying now. So it's all about having the right coverage, whether it's health insurance, life insurance, car insurance, whatever it is. Also, a way to get your costs down is to understand what insurance is. Insurance is to protect you against a catastrophe of some kind, a financial catastrophe or your home burning down or something. So you want to have high deductibles. You want to incur some of that risk yourself. Um, You take car insurance. If you take a $1,000 deductible on a car insurance, obviously the premium is going to be lower than someone who takes a $200 deductible. Same is true of health insurance. If you to take higher co-payments and higher deductibles, yes, somebody has to come out of your pocket when you go to the doctors or you go in the hospital, that's fine. But you want to protect yourself against the catastrophic expenses of having an operation or or, or being seriously ill or something like that and that's where the health insurance will step in. So we can easily cut 20 to 25% a year of the amount of money that we spend on different insurances by just taking higher deductibles and looking into the different policies that are available to us.
2: Let's talk about the health insurance area because it's about to change dramatically with the new health insurance law. Uh, What would you recommend for somebody who today Say they're younger and relatively healthy, but do not have any health insurance. Based on what's coming, what kind of move
3: should they make? Well you have to have health insurance period okay now I mean if you're single and you don't have how many assets and you say you know uh, look if I get sick you'll take care of me Medicaid or whatever all right you know you want to do that until uh, health insurance is mandated on you that's fine uh, but uh, I believe everybody needs to have at least the basic amount of health insurance uh, you want to take high deductibles and, and everything else to keep the cost down but you got to get insurance because even if the government covers you through Medicaid you know you're not going to get the same kind of treatment uh, that you would if you had your own health insurance. So, yeah, there's going to be lots of changes to health insurance. I think uh, many of us still don't really understand what those changes are going to be. Uh, I've been uh, looking into the bill for two weeks now, and I still don't fully understand it because it's voluminous. It's 2,700 pages or whatever it is. Uh, but, uh, uh, I think there's going to be uh, significant changes into into medical care, health insurance, in the years to come, and uh, and I don't think I, I fully understand how to advise people right now because I don't fully understand uh, what the health reform package really means to each individual. You now you we think do know that insurance? we have to get health insurance. It's going to be mandated to us uh, in 2014. Uh, how we get it and what's going to be available to us, uh, I think that's questionable at this time.
2: So for somebody between now and 2014. Uh, should they just get a high-deductible policy, or what kind of uh, health insurance coverage? You said they should have to have something, but 50 million people have no health insurance whatsoever. So as a basic kind of thing, what should people do if they're on their own, don't have a company-offered plan?
3: Yeah, you want to get a very cheap, HMO uh, with high deductibles, high co-pays, just to protect you against the, the catastrophic situation that may arise. Uh, you have to do it. Uh, it's just unavoidable. Uh, and the problem that we have with health insurance right now is that so many people have lost their jobs, and they counted on their employer's health insurance uh, to, to, to cover them. Now, one good thing the government has done is the, the COBRA program has really protected people where the government's uh, subsidizing 65% of the premium. So if, you was co- if it was costing you uh, your employer a thousand dollars a month uh, to insure your family uh, through Cobra, it's only going to cost you three hundred and fifty a month. All right. Now, so now for somebody out of work, three hundred and fifty a month is still a lot of money, but the health insurance is going to be one of the first things that you pay, especially if you have a, a family. You have to be able to protect. Them. So yes, I would get a high deductible, high copay, basic HMO policy. Uh, and, and then if uh, things get better, you get hired again, then you can uh, get uh, more of a Cadillac plan. But right now, it's just the basics.
2: So without going into the details, well, we have to take a break. I'm going to come back after this. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. Uh, my guest this hour is Louis K- Skatigna, who is a certified financial planner uh, based in New Jersey. Uh, his uh, book is called The Financial Physician. Uh, his website is thefinancialphysician.com. We'll be back after this.
0: Were you full of questions such as why, how, and what if? Did you allow yourself to be carefree, to dance and sing? Did you create just for fun? Want to feel that way again? Reclaim your natural curiosity and creativity with Dr. Carol Stalkup on Stargazing Stories, sparking your creativity. Revitalize your life, work, and relationships. Be more playful, be bold, imagine, explore, and live more creatively every day. Tune in Wednesdays at 11 a.m. in the East, 8 a.m. in the West on 7th Wave Network.
2: Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Lewis Scatigna, who is a certified financial planner in New Jersey. Uh, his newest book is called *The Financial Physician*. Welcome
3: back to the show, Lewis. I'm having a good time being with you today on your show. Glad
2: we'll to Thanks, do John. it. We uh, want to talk a little bit about the failure to understand financial psychology. What, what are some of the things people don't understand about their psychology, and how does it affect that uh, their
3: use of money? I tell you. Uh, Nothing more than money makes people irrational. I mean, it's not love, politics, religion, it's money. And and the way we think about money affects the way we handle money, the way we invest. Uh, and there's two different attitudes people have about money. Now, I've been a financial advisor for 27 years, so I've had literally thousands of appointments.
2: I think we're losing Lewis. Uh, He's talking about the attitudes of abundance and the attitudes of lack, uh, where people either have a sense of uh, they're always going to get what they need uh, to live a good life and support their families. Uh, Those who've had this attitude of abundance feel the world is filled with opportunities and possibilities, uh, but they tend to have little money uh, as they grew up and don't feel concerned about it. Uh, The attitude of lack is believing you may not have or be able to get whatever you want or need. Uh, his clients uh, who are in many cases are millionaires still have this attitude of lack uh, they're always concerned they don't don't have enough uh, so they are very tight with their money even though they've got loads of money and they're kind of compulsive savers who are always worried uh, that they may lose whatever uh, they've got most of these people sorry
3: Jordan I got uh, disconnected oh, from you there
2: okay we were just talking I'm, about the difference between the attitude of abundance and the attitude of lack in the two different
3: uh, uh, right. Right. And as I said before, I got cut off here. Uh, when you have an attitude of lack, you think you're never going to have enough. And you, you, you're usually very conservative because you can't lose it because you're not going to ever have enough. And you know what? These, uh, the attitude of lack or abundance has nothing to do with how much money you have. That's the interesting thing. I have a client, a woman who's 82 years old. She has almost $3 million with me. And every time I meet with her, she's always deadly afraid that she's going to be broke and destitute. Now obviously there's no way she's ever going to be broken destitute, but she has that attitude of lack. Now people who have an attitude of abundance always think they have enough, they're never going to run out of money, and uh they're the first to pick up the check. They're more aggressive in their investments because, you know, everything's gonna be fine. So we operate from those two different attitudes. And it makes a big difference on how we manage our money. And the big problem is when the husband is in an attitude of abundance and the wife is an attitude of lack because they're banging heads about how they manage money. Then I've distilled down people to five different financial profiles. The first one's the high roller. This guy is the big risk taker, everything's a gamble in life and he uses high risk investment strategies trying to hit a home run on every investment. And that's a very dangerous profile to be. And uh they lose more than they gain. Then the second one, another dangerous profile, is the abdicator. Uh, This person has little or no interest in managing money at all. Typically, it's an older woman. Maybe the husband managed the money, and now all of a sudden she's got to deal with it, so she'll just trust anybody who wants to help her, a financial advisor or whatever. And they're frequently taken advantage of by uh, financial sharks that are out there. Third, we have the credit junkie. Uh, That person is addicted to acquiring things. They're addicted to debt and spending, and they just want to go shopping. And uh, uh, they have big credit card balances. They build little or no net worth. uh, Obviously a very dangerous uh, profile as well. Then we have the squirrel. Uh, The squirrel is as conservative as they come. You know, they're afraid of losing money. They put money away. They live a very frugal life. And and that's good, but I think uh, sometimes they have trouble keeping pace with inflation because uh, their interest rates are so low. And then lastly, we have the money master. Obviously, this is the best person. They're obsessed with money management. They're well-educated. Uh, they're financially literate. They tend to do things themselves. They employ risk controls, but they also live a balanced life and they enjoy their money.
2: So when you have a, a spouse and two different people in a marriage, that are different uh, money types. How, how are they supposed to get along if they've got such different
3: views towards money? Uh, it's very difficult. But this is the kind I, I believe that, you know, husband and wife, unless it's a late marriage, money should be pooled and they should manage it together. And I always say, both you and your honey should manage the money. You should sit down together and deal with bills together and everything else. But when I have clients who are opposites, I say, look, let's divide the money. Let's have some money in your name, some money in your name, and now we're going to have some very conservative investments for you, and you, you could be more aggressive. That way, it's the only thing you can do. I mean, otherwise, you're going to have to get divorced. I mean, if they don't they're not compatible money-wise, they have to figure out a way that it'll work.
2: And so I find that that works the very, very well. You're, you're the referee between them in some cases?
3: Oh, many times uh, I'm the referee. Uh, or I, maybe I don't want to be, but they throw it on my table and say, she wants to do this, he wants to do that, before I know it, I'm a, uh, I'm a marriage counselor. Uh, but a lot of what we do as financial advisors is therapy. I call myself a financial therapist. A lot of what I do is psychological. Uh, we sit down with clients and we deal with their emotions. We deal with their psychological issues regarding money because a lot of it is totally irrational. Uh, just this morning, I had a a, a client, a widow, in, uh, that was so definitely afraid of being broke. Her husband just died, uh, but she has over a million dollar net worth. And I said to her, "I said, Doris, there's no way that you're going to outlive your money. You know, you're 80 years old." You have enough money to generate the income to pay your bills, and she's ready to, to, to fire the woman who cleans her house because she felt she didn't have enough. Well, she didn't have any financial training. Her husband didn't keep her involved in the finances, and she just didn't understand and was totally irrational about it. So, you know, it's it's real important that we we get financial therapy when we feel that we're irrational about our money.
2: So, what is the treatment for financial you know spats between spouses? I guess you might say.
3: Well, the key here is is communication and, and working together. Too often one spouse manages the money and the other spouse is left out, and that spouse will sabotage the other spouse. Not necessarily on purpose, but by not being engaged in the finances, they'll be out there spending when the, the other spouse is trying to pay the bills. So the whole idea is to try to work together. And I state that every couple should find a quiet time once a month, sit down together, go over each bill together, and pay it together. Write the check. Talk about how you can get that bill down. As an example, the electric bill, it's $500 a month. You say, I'd like to get this down $100. Let's get it to $400 next month. Let's do everything we can to do it. Now we're on the same team. Now we're accountable to each other. We're both going to be turning off the lights and putting the heat down because when that electric bill comes next month, we're going to open it together, and we're going to be thrilled if we achieved our goal. And we're down a hundred dollars. So again, it's, it's accountability to each other and motivation to each other. The same is true of our credit card bills. We want to go through everything we spent on that credit card. What's the interest rate? How can we get that balance down an extra hundred dollars this month? All right, this is what we're going to do. You know, we usually go out to eat every Friday. We're only going to go out to eat two Fridays this month. We're going to take that extra hundred and fifty dollars uh, that we spend on those days, and we're going to plow it towards the balance of the credit card. Again, we're a team. We have a goal. We have accountability. Accountability.
2: Very good. Well, it's really been fascinating. Uh, again, if you want to find out more, Lewis's website is thefinancialphysician.com. Uh, his website uh, is that, and his book is called The Financial Physician. We just had a, a small amount of uh, sense of what's in that book. Lots of uh, very helpful financial advice uh, for people out there. Thanks so much for being on The Money Answer Show, Lewis.
3: Jordan, I really had a good time. Thanks for having me.
2: Thank you, and we'll be back again with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week.